Welcome to the Dermatology Podcast, the official podcast of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. I'm Christopher Horskamp. And I'm Cecilia Mitzwash. And we are your hosts. This week, we will join Dr. Sarah Walsh as she moderates a discussion with Dr. Pauline O'Reilly and Professor Jean-Paul Lefecheur on the subject of Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis. But first, there's less than a month to go. That's right. On the 6th and 7th of May, the ADV Spring Symposium will be one of the most important virtual events this spring. With over 100 speakers and 30 hours of semi-live lectures, our scientific program is full of exciting updates. For more information, go to www.eadvsymposium2021.org. This week's episode on Stevens-Johnson syndrome will be moderated by Dr. Sarah Walsh of the EADV Education Committee. She will be speaking with Professor Pauline O'Reilly and Professor Jean-Pascal Lefacheur. Professor O'Reilly co-authored the paper Patients, Family Members and Healthcare Practitioners' Experiences of Stevens-Johnson Syndrome and Toxic Epidermal Necrolysis, a qualitative descriptive study using emotional touchpoints. Professor Lefacheur co-authored the paper Involvement of Small Diameter Nerve Fibers in Long-Term Chronic Pain After Stevens-Johnson Syndrome or Toxic Epidermal Necrolysis, a Neurophysiological Assessment. Before we jump in there, we have with us Professor Mirta Tracatelli, the chair of the EADV Education Committee. Today we're trying a new format. What could you tell us about this new concept or maybe more accurately, new collaboration? Well, uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, I cannot say it's actually a new concept. I could say it's a new synergy. Uh, this uh, kind of uh, project is a collaboration project between the GATV and the education, the school committee. And uh, you could call it um, education squared because uh, we are the members of the education committee are looking into the GADV articles, selecting some of them and interviewing the authors. So you would say that this uh, education, uh, like a double portion of education, if I can say it like this way. That's a very good way to put it. Uh, now, you work with Dr. Sarah Walsh on the EADV School Committee. Would you care to introduce her for our audience? So, Sarah Walsh is um, a very engaged and motivated member of the committee. She's been really instrumental this past year in helping develop uh, all the new plans for education and uh, promoting innovation and helping modernize the way we deliver education in this committee. Uh, she's a specialist and an expert in inflammatory diseases uh, in King's College in London. And uh, by the way, if I may say, she's a great friend and a great tennis player. <laughs> That's great. Let's have a listen to their discussion. So my name's Sarah Walsh. Uh, I'm a consultant dermatologist at King's College Hospital in London. And I'm also a member of the EADV School Committee. So I'm uh, really grateful for the opportunity to host this, one of the first podcasts uh, for the EADV uh, joint initiative with the JEADV. And um, so one of my big areas of clinical interest within dermatology is uh, severe drug reactions, um, in particular Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis. And so I guess I allowed that bias to inform my uh, choice of papers for today's podcast. 
Um, so I'd like to begin by just giving you a brief introduction to our speakers. Um, I'm delighted to welcome um, Dr. Pauline O'Reilly, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Limerick um, in the Faculty of Nursing and Midwifery, um, where she is uh, a very experienced lecturer on a number of the different programmes there. She's also the principal investigator in uh, Health Research Ireland funded project and um, the development of psychological interventions for patients with Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And uh, her research interests include dermatology and um, mental health um, and care of the older person, uh, two of which have clearly fed into some of the research that she's been involved in. So um, welcome, Pauline. Thank you, Sarah, and I'm delighted to be here. And thank you to the GEABD for inviting me to be a participant in this podcast. Um, and secondly, um, I'd like to welcome Professor Jean-Pascal Lefaucheur, who is a professor of clinical neurophysiology at um, the Hôpital Henri Mondor in Paris, in Créteil, um, where, of course, they have um, a huge and highly sophisticated uh, unit for caring for patients with um, Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis. Uh, it would be considered uh, to be a world-leading centre, both in the clinical care and the research um, in this domain. Um, he's also the editor-in-chief of um, Neurophysiologique Clinique, Clinical Neurophysiology, um, and is very widely published uh, in the field of peripheral neuropathies, um, particularly those related to pain. So uh, welcome, Jean-Pascal. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really sorry because I'm not a dermatologist. I'm only a neurologist. So I hope that all my uh, speakings will be uh, fully understandable for uh, all the dermatologists of your uh, audience. Uh, no, we're absolutely delighted to have you. And it's great to have some depth and breadth to the podcast. We would be bored if we spoke only to dermatologists, I can tell you that. Um, so the, the two papers I selected, I guess, are related in the sense that uh, they look at two very different aspects of the same clinical problem. And one of those, uh, which is the research that Jean-Pascal has been involved in, is that related to the perception of pain and chronic pain uh, as a sequelae of uh, Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And the other aspect is that of the psychological um, burden of SJS in the uh, acute phase and in the chronic phase, which has been looked at by Pauline. So I thought we'd maybe start um, with you, Jean-Pascal. Um, and I wonder, your, your, your major study um, looked at both the frequency and the quality of chronic pain in survivors of SJS-TN. And the publication found that over a third of patients, so 36% um, of patients with SJS-TN develop uh, pain in the, the chronic phase and the convalescent phase uh, with an average intensity of five out of 10. Now, did, did you expect the proportion to be that high? Yes, really, it, uh, it really corresponds to our uh, clinical uh, practice in, um, in most of our patients. In fact, we found that there are some pain uh, aspects in, uh, in their uh, long-term assessment. So um, it was really not uh, a surprise to, to, to find these results. Uh, and um, in fact, the, 
this study was carried out rather to better understand the reasons why patients had pain, not to only, but the confirmation of the frequency of chronic pain was not a surprise for us. And I, I guess you, your group is one of the first to have commented on this phenomenon in the context of SJSTN. But are you aware, is there any literature in the related area of burns medicine to the frequency? Yes, for instance, I think that the, the uh, problem of, of burn injury on, on chronic pain after burn injuries is quite similar to the problem of uh, pain after uh, SJSTN. And in fact, in the 90s, there are a, a very good series of, of, uh, of articles published by a, a team from Quebec who uh, report uh, exactly the same uh, frequency of chronic pain syndrome after burn injury uh, in terms of about over a third of patients with chronic distressing chronic pain in the long term mm -hmm. after burn injury. So I think the two clinical conditions are quite uh, uh, very similar. And, and because as you point, quite rightly pointed out, you're, you're the neurologist. Can you explain to our dermatology um, listeners um, the theories about how nerve pain in the skin might result uh, from SJSTN? So what are the patho mechanisms for that? Okay, so uh, the peripheral mechanisms of pain are, are quite simple. In fact, you have nociceptors uh, located in the epidermis. And in fact, within the epidermis, you have only uh, small fibro nerve endings um, not uh, other types of, of, of uh, axon terminations. For instance, all the mechanical non-nociceptive sensations are uh, uh, related to, to receptors below the epidermis. So the epidermis is a, a, a really um, the site of uh, peripheral integration of pain, the perception of pain. And uh, these nociceptors are um, mostly uh, calcium channel receptors are connected to, uh, are located at the end of the of small axons uh, of either thinly myelinated or unmyelinated axons. And these axons, when the nociceptors are activated, can uh, generate and propagate action potentials uh, to the uh, spinal cord, the spinal ganglia on the spinal horn. And the propagation of action potentials are uh, under the action of uh, voltage-gated uh, uh, sodium channels. So um, this information uh, uh, at the origin in the epidermis can be obviously disturbed by toxic epidermolysis. Mm -hmm. So um, if the axons on receptors are lost due to the uh, skin lesions, um, you can, for instance, uh, consider that um, uh, you have a sensory loss, but not uh, a, pain, a pain syndrome, a pain uh, event. In fact, to uh, consider that pain occurs after uh, a skin lesion, you need to consider that it is related to skin repair and to axonal regrowth and uh, increased expression of nociceptors within the epidermis. And it has been demonstrated in one, not in uh, SGSTN, but in one uh, very good study in uh, after burn injury. Uh, in fact, chronic pain was related to an increased expression of uh, axon endings in the skin, um, uh, expressing uh, high level of, uh, of uh, nociceptive transmitters like CGRP. So oh that's to be demonstrated also uh, after HGSTM, and we expect to uh, perform this type of study in the, in the next future. But uh, clearly, pain is related not to sensory deafferentation, but to 
uh, an overexpression, an overactivity of uh, of uh, small nociceptive endings in the epidermis after axonal regrowth. Mm-hmm. And oh, it, it depends on patient and it depends on the mechanism mechanism of skin repair. But in some patients, you can have a peripheral sensitization due to an axonal aberrant uh, maladaptive axonal regrowth and increased expression of uh, nociceptors of uh, ion channels or yeah. uh, neurotransmitters favoring uh, the expression of pain at the, at, the, at the level of the skin. Oh, that's, gosh, that's it's really fascinating. And I presume what will be very interesting is if we can find the factors that might influence this overexpression of nociceptors in the skin and repair. I mean, for example, would infection, if the patient has infection supervene in their skin lesions during the acute illness, might this be a factor that would influence their... In this domain, I think the main factor is uh, uh, determined by genes, for instance, genes, genes okay. of uh, yes, form, isoforms of uh, various neurotrophic factors like uh, BDNF. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is clear that some subject or patients can uh, have a possibility of developing some pain related to um, an, an increased expression of some, of some uh, neurotrophic factors uh, within the skin. So I think not all, but one of the part of the problem is uh, determined by uh, uh, genetic uh, uh, heterogeneity on the isoform of the various neurotrophic factors. Very interesting. So, yeah, genetic more so than environmental factors or... Environment is quite the same uh, yeah. in all cases, but uh, uh, the ground in terms of, uh, of genes and the um, possibility of axonal regress or expression of various types of uh, nociceptors is different from uh, uh, between individuals. So I, I hope the listeners have had a chance to read um, the paper we're referring to, but the study uh, refers to sensory descriptors and affective descriptors. Um, and they, they were new terms to me. And I was wondering if you could explain to the listeners um, what the difference is between these and why is it port- important to distinguish between them when you're dealing with patients with chronic pain? In fact, the, the mechanisms that I explained to you about the difference in terms of peripheral sensitization is not, it's just one aspect of the, of the problem of chronic pain. Uh, in fact, you can have an uh, hyperexcitability, hyperactivity of the nociceptors or the uh, peripheral small axons and no uh, pain condition. Because within the uh, central nervous system, you have a lot of uh, systems uh, able to inhibit or control the transmission of the nociceptive information. So, for instance, a uh, very famous uh, gate control within the spinal cord. So, um, even if you have a peripheral sensitization, you can have no chronic pain uh, condition in uh, in terms of uh, of clinical examination. So, um, to in most or all patients with chronic pain syndrome, you need to have a, 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 an additional phenomenon of central sensitization. In fact, within the brain, you have various um, brain circuits called pain matrices um, uh, that need to collaborate to uh, uh, lead to a, a, a balance between various uh, uh, information within the brain. And if you have an imbalance or uh, dysfunction be- in the communication between these pain matrices, you can uh, it can cause uh, a, a condition of chronic pain. 
So uh, to distinguish on clinical uh, examinations, it's quite easy to, uh, to distinguish between the three aspects of pain just by asking some simple questions. For instance, if the patient's uh, rather expressed uh, pain as a uh, burning sensation, as uh, tingling, itching sensation, uh, it corresponds to um, major uh, sensory disturbances. Uh, if the patient expressed pain rather like, like uh, depressing, annoying, uh, uh, distressing, so it refers to uh, an emotional part of uh, the emotional aspect of pain uh, as um, uh, the major event. So I think that just not using complicated questionnaires, just by, use, just by uh, listening to the patients, to the um, manner that the patient expressed uh, the pain, uh, you can easily distinguish between some peripheral sensitization uh, uh, expressed by sensory aspects. So I think that it's just a very simple uh, uh, evi clinical evidence to, to, to make yeah. these uh, differences. Oh, that's, a, that's a really great, great clinical tip, actually, Jean-Pascal, is to, yeah, listening carefully yes, when, you just, take the, when you take the history for the adjectives that, yes, the, yes. that the patients use. And, and I mean, that sort of leads on to, to the next uh, question I wanted to ask you, which is on this very complex relationship uh, between chronic pain and psychological factors. And in the case that we're talking about PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, um, because I know at Kritai, you have looked in the past at PTSD and found it in about a quarter um, of patient survivors of SJSTN. But the, stu the study we're talking about today, this one about chronic pain, um, didn't establish a link between uh, the presence or absence of PTSD and chronic pain. Was this a surprise to you, given the results of the, of the previous study? So um, in our last study, we have not uh, um, used a, a specific, a dedicated questionnaire for PTSD. So it is difficult to compare the, our two studies because uh, our first one was about uh, PTSD, but only at six months after the initial event of uh, SGS uh, uh, of Steven Johnson syndrome. So um, and our last study is uh, the average duration delay after the onset was about five or six years. So it is very difficult to compare some uh, patients only six months after uh, the, the, the onset of the Steven Johnson syndrome and uh, five or six years after. And uh, also the sample sizes were different. So it is difficult to, to, to compare the two studies, but in fact, even if it is not a complete PTSD, uh, I think that uh, psychological factors on the, uh, uh, the distressing uh, uh, um, minds at the uh, during the initial episode is a, a major factor for uh, uh, considering chronicization of pain. But mm -hmm. you you know, in fact, my main message is you have two types of mechanisms, two major uh, mechanisms: either a peripheral sensitization, which is depending on some on individual factors uh, within the skin about neurotrophic factors and the axonal regress, and also some psychological factors and emotional factors, most related to the uh, um, severity of the distressing uh, initial event. 
And uh, in fact, the two mechanisms can be uh, combined or even maybe uh, predominant in some patients. And uh, I think that only by using some simple uh, uh, questions and during clinical examination, you can distinguish between uh, these, two, these two mechanisms and also considering the uh, history of the initial episode. Yeah, again, I, I mean, that's just a really useful clinical tip because it suggests that one does not need very sophisticated tests. Just need to ask and listen, uh, ask the good questions and listen to the patients. Yeah, as, as we as we all learned at, at medical school, it's good to know that that still, that still holds. And I mean, I think, you know, we're going to be talking to Pauline a little bit about this, but uh, do you think it's possible that, um, you know, having an early preemptive um, strategy with interventions to um, reduce PTSD might also help the proportion of patients experiencing um, chronic pain following SJSTEN. Yes, the, the initial and the acute and also post-acute uh, uh, stage, for instance, uh, the several weeks after the initial uh, episode, uh, are crucial, are critical, I think, because, uh, for instance, it, it has been clearly demonstrated in uh, post-operative pain. So the need to control pain or also control psychological factors during this acute and post-acute phase is a very uh, um, critical to avoid some chronicization of pain uh, or distressing psychological uh, 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 events in the long term. So I think that it is very important to control pain in the initial period, uh, in the weeks after the, the Stephen Johnson onset, I think. It's mm -hmm. very critical. Do you know if any such uh, interventions have been done in, we, we've made the analogy previously with the burns. Uh, has that been, is there any literature in that area to support this early psychological intervention? Yes, uh, uh, you have the uh, analogy with the patients with burns injury, but also analogy, as I told you before, with the uh, patients with uh, post-operative pain and also uh, traumatic nerve lesion, for instance, to avoid some uh, complex regional pain syndrome. So I think that the control of pain during the, the first weeks uh, of such an acute uh, distressing event is, is very important, clearly, to, mm -hmm. to avoid chronicization. You know, maybe just to, to finish up, Jean-Pascal, I might ask you to just make a brief comment on, you know, the more recent publication in the JEADV on the, um, the pathophysiological mechanism for chronic pain focusing on small diameter nerve fibres. And I was wondering if you could just explain to the, the dermatology listeners what, what the basics of the neurophysiology testing would consist of, just for those of us who aren't familiar with this on a day-to-day -day basis. For you see that uh, small fibers are uh, um, mediating all nociceptive information, also thermal information uh, in the sensory system. So uh, you have some um, neurophysiological tests uh, to uh, uh, evaluate the um, um, function of these fibers. But uh, in uh, our um, published uh, manuscript, we, we found that, in fact, uh, patients with uh, Steven Johnson syndrome and chronic pain could have either normal uh, small fibers uh, according to the results of the neurophysiological testing or uh, altered fibers, and it was not uh, related to the presence or absence of chronic pain. So 
uh, in fact, the, um, uh, these neurophysiological tests, as for this is the same for uh, uh, skin biopsy, are just testing the presence uh, of, of uh, small fibers and the fact that they are uh, uh, severely damaged or, uh, or rather normal. But they are not evaluating this, this, um, uh, these tests are not evaluating the uh, activity of these fibers. So even if you have a few fibers remaining but very active, you can have a peripheral sensitization on chronic pain. There are some research testing, for instance, some uh, immunostaining of neurotransmitters, some uh, neurophysiological uh, testing of uh, nerve excitability, but not uh, um, not in the clinical practice, not uh, uh, able to be performed in the clinical practice. So you have research tool to uh, demonstrate or confirm the existence of uh, peripheral sensitization of an hyperactivity of uh, small nerve endings uh, after axonal regress. But uh, unfortunately, all the uh, tests that can be applied in routine practice are useless because the, these tests are not uh, assessing this uh, specific hyperactivity. So at present, for the moment, you have only uh, clinical examination on uh, response of, responses of the patient to some uh, uh, particular questions about the descriptors of pain, but mm -hmm. you have not uh, um, labora laboratory investigation, uh, neurophysiological test or, uh, or histological pathological test to confirm the uh, peripheral sensitization. In front of you. But maybe in the future you will have uh, we'll have some uh, 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 new tests at our disposal, but not not at present. So yeah, I mean, as you say, talking to the patient is the important part, but probably some some more work to be done. So well, yeah. thank you very much for that fascinating insight into your into your work, Jean Pascal. And I hope you'll be able to stay with us um, as we uh, chat to. Um, to Pauline uh, a little bit about her research, which was entitled um, Patients, Family Members and Healthcare Practitioners Experience of Stevens-Johnson Syndrome and Toxic Epidermal, Epidermal Necrolysis, a qualitative descriptive study using emotional touch points. And um, so this very, very much links back to what we've just been talking about and the, the, the experience of patients uh, who have S who develop SJSTN both at the time of the acute illness and and afterwards, um, and Pauline, can you tell us a little bit what was the the original inspiration uh, for this for this study? Because I know you work closely with some really excellent clinicians in Limerick. Um, thank you, Sarah. Um, as you said earlier on, um, I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Nursing and Midwifery in the University of Limerick. So I have research collaborations with Sheila Ryan, who is an advanced nurse practitioner in dermatology, and Professor Bart Ramsey, consultant dermatology in the Charles Centre for Dermatology in University Hospital Limerick. And both Sarah and Bart have a great deal of experience of caring for patients, as you've said, with SGS, TEN. And Sheila had spoken to me previously uh, about, uh, you know, her experience of caring for these patients and the devastating impact that this condition appeared to have on their lives. So Sheila, Bart and I met, uh, we did a quick, you know, we did a quick search of the evidence to find out what was, what did the evidence tell us about the impact? And we found that there was very little done there. So that's prompted us really to, you know, to investigate this more and to try and develop a psychological care pathway or a psychological intervention to help with these patients. So consequently, we decided to apply for some funding 
And we put a nice project together, nice work packages. We co-opted some researchers that are mentioned on the paper. And uh, we were fortunate to get funding from the Health Research Institute in the University of Limerick. And that allowed us to employ a research assistant, Dr. Barbara Whelan, which was absolutely brilliant. And we had a number of questions that we wanted to, to um, get answered. The first one was being, whilst we knew anecdotally that this condition had an impact on, on people's lives, we want to know what did the evidence tell us. So we did a systematic review. And that review, um, you know, the we only got six papers that met our inclusion criteria. And while the information was pretty, you know, it was small, it was, it you know, it wasn't great, it was very evident within those papers that these patients did present with a, like, a lot of psychological issues in terms the the words they expressed were very much aligned to um, words that you would hear with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, they were anxious, depressed. Um, the, the families were affected. Um, they spoke about um, healthcare practitioners that they may have come in contact who may not have had the information and how that impacted on their lives. So even though there was only six papers, it, it gave us enough information to start the project off. And I suppose the second uh, uh, work package that we had was, look, we know it's having an impact. Let's ask patients. Let's ask the family members. And let's also try and ask the healthcare practitioners what are their experiences of either having or caring for patients with SGSTEN. And that's the paper that we're talking about today in the um, JEAVD. So yes, you had those kind of three points. You had the patient, the healthcare workers and the, and the, and the families. And you used a, a technique that I hadn't previously been familiar with, but that of an emotional touch point interviews. Mm. Would you be able to tell me and the listeners a little bit about what that consists of? Well, um, this was interesting because we used a, an interpretive descriptive study that was based on Sally Thorne's design. And the data collection method that I used was semi-structured interviews, and in particular, as you said, emotional touchpoint interviews. So I had certain questions that I wanted to have answered. Uh, and I also used these words that I'll speak about in a second. But a touch point is a moment where an individual interacts with the health service and an experience is created. So I had six touch points. So I had, say, for example, for the patient, my experience at the beginning, communicating with staff, being in a hospital ward, understanding what's happening, preparing to go home and the future. So I had certain questions that I wanted uh, answered about those different aspects. Then using the emotional words, um, the participants and interviewees were asked to reflect on their experiences. And I had a variety of emotional words written on laminated cards. And these words I would have got from the literature of different words that patients would have used. Uh, so scared, nervous, anxious, not being listened to, you know, words like that. And the, they were, um, again, I had blank cards as well. So if the participants had other words that they wanted to use, they could also write those down. And I found that using these emotional touch points, uh, it led to kind of a rich exploration of, you know, getting in there, you know, what, how exactly did you feel? How did you think the patient, the, the patient felt when you were caring for them? So the words were very good because they prompted the individual to think a little bit more in depth 
actually into their experience. Because when you start interviewing somebody, they can be nervous and perhaps it's good just to maybe give them some of those words to give them an idea. And actually, I ask them afterwards, you know, particularly the patients and family members, did they find it of value? And they really did. I'm sure just to get the ball rolling yeah, and to yeah. trigger some, yes. some thought processes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is it is fascinating, this concept of, you know, the touch points. So it's it's any interaction that the patient yes. has with a healthcare provider and how, you know, that is not when someone has SJSTN. It's not simply the interaction right. with the dermatologist. There yeah. will be many, many interactions both before and after the acute yeah. episode. And how interesting to think that that might influence, as you say, not only their psychological outcome, but also, uh, you know, Jean-Pascal has referred to their mm-hmm. their pain outcome, like they may be left with more mm-hmm. chronic mm-hmm. symptoms as a, as a result mm-hmm. of that. And, and I'm guessing, could you comment a little bit about the, the words and the language uh, that were used by the patients when contrasted with the healthcare professionals? So pre- presumably they had different sets of language, if you like, associated with their experience? Yes, well, a lot of the patients, um, they were really scared. Um, Family members mentioned feeling numb, uh, which I thought was interesting. You know, they were there trying to support their their, um, relative, but they actually felt numb. Um, The the healthcare practitioners spoke about um, when I asked them, their, you know, what were their inference or experiences in relation to the, the, the um, caring for the patient? It depended on their experience. So if they were, and, and even one of them said that they had a lot of experience, but they were still frightened. It was still, you know, it was, you know, they were nervous, frightened, mm. but then they got into, you know, again, their, their care pathway. But they understood, they used words similar to the patients when I asked them, how did they think the patient experienced this, this condition? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting to note that it is a very uh, stressful time also for the staff. And they did use, you know, quite strong emotional words as well so uh, mm-hmm. I think we can't ignore that either yeah I think anyone who's looked after an SJS or TEN yeah. patient can identify with that it, it is certainly uh yeah it weighs on your mind when you've got uh when you've got a sick patient with that condition and and Pauline did did your group use any I mean obviously this was a piece of uh qualitative research but um, did your group use any of the objective tools available for measuring uh, patient distress you know, in the acute phase or the convalescent phase, I'm thinking about, you know, like the GAD or the PHQ-9 and... Within the clinical settings here. Yeah. Um, Not really, but that's, again, something that we saw that there's a gap there. I think it's something that we definitely need to look at. Yeah, because I think it'd be quite interesting, you know, as a clinician, we're sort of, uh, you know, very much trained to use these uh, these scoring Mm. systems Mm. nowadays. And it'd be very interesting to be able to make a correlation, I think, between what you found qualitatively Mm. and then what these objective uh, scoring systems. And hopefully that's Mm. something that we can, Mm. well, that hopefully we can work on again in the future. And so, you know, your study, Pauline, sort of um, ratifies a proposal that's been made elsewhere in the, the literature, which is that with a more sort of preemptive approach, um, adopting that might help to address some of the emotional, psychological sequelae uh, in these patients. Um, and do, do you have any ideas how we might start to do that as clini- clinicians? 
you know, both during the hospital stay and afterwards? Um, I think, you know, that's what we set out to do. We tried to develop a psychological um, care pathway and a psychological intervention. And we have plans to expand our work. And as you've said, I think it's important that we, we, we look at the quantitative as well as the qualitative. And we're hoping to work with our colleagues, indeed yourself and uh, Dr. Seski Ingenhouse and Dr. Ronnie Dudiakad and uh, Chris Bonker. So I think... Um, some of the things that are important would be that healthcare practitioners having a good knowledge uh, of SGS and TENS and being able to, uh, to keep patients and family members informed. Um, I think it's very important that uh, a central liaison person like, in our case, uh, Sheila, who's the advanced nurse practitioner and a senior uh, dermatologist like Bart, uh, guide the overall care. I think that, that's very important. Uh, and work with the other members in the team because it's not just the skin that's involved, as you know. So you have to work with in relation to pain manage pain management, ICU professionals, and all of that. But also, I think it's very important that these people um, do some baseline work in terms of mind training techniques with the patients. And uh, we know from experience that meditation can help. Uh, how we look at what's happening so that we can have different responses as opposed to having, uh, I suppose, a habitual reaction. So we're looking at something perhaps maybe like a nap that can guide the patient in different meditation techniques uh, that could be used, as we say, from maybe from the beginning, from admission uh, throughout the days that they're in hospital. And you utilising things like body scans or, you know, loving kindness practice. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can help the patient have uh, intensive mind training, it will give them a framework to, to face the daily challenges that they're going to have. Uh, and as my colleague, uh, Professor Ramsey highlights, you know, the, the patient gets a lot of medical care, but sometimes uh, it's minimal psychological care. And uh, if instead, if we add in the mind care from day one, then I think it becomes part of the overall care package. Um, other things that can help, you know, like healthcare practitioner, practitioners having good confidence, um, being able to provide hope to the patients and family members. Um, we're, we're actually currently finalizing a systematic review. And it was Jean Pascal, you were mentioning about Burns patients. So we've looked at the psychological interventions that are used with Burns patients. And we also looked at the evidence of psychological interventions for SGS-10s, and there's nothing really out there. But, a, a lot, you know, we're finalizing that. And, you know, we might adapt something from that literature. Uh, and as you said, Jean Pascal, I think over half the, the, the papers reflect on using interventions to reduce uh, pain and anxiety in patients. Mm -hmm. uh, I think follow-up care is very important as well. So there are just some of the things. Yeah, yeah, no, that I mean, that very much resonates with my experience. So it sounds like potential interventions will be very much in the domain of sort of Buddhist mindfulness traditions. Yes. And I, yeah, I mean, as I say, yes. I'm sure there is probably logically one would think that would be uh, the, the, the route to go down. But I, I, I completely agree with you about the the importance of having consistent ex experienced clinicians looking after these patients, because I think one of the most powerful messages and I actually learned this from a colleague of Jean-Pascal in Cretay, uh, Jean-Claude Rougeau, unfortunately recently deceased. But he said one of the most important messages to get across to the family in the early stages of caring for a patient with SJSTN is to say, 
you know, your relative, your husband, your wife, they're in the right place. They're being cared for by the right clinicians. They've come to a place where we know how to manage this disease. And conveying that message just inspires a, a huge amount of confidence and a huge amount of uh, instills hope in the in the relatives. And I thought it was such a beautifully simple message mm. to convey right at the beginning uh, as a way of sort of comforting usually you know the the, the, re the relatives related to the patient and I mean I want to go on to ask you Pauline about um the families so those who have not directly experienced the disease but are clearly experiencing some ripple effect or ramifications because we did um we did a study at King's looking at the experience of patients with another of the severe uh, drug reaction syndromes, DRESS, um, and it was a it was a convalescent study. So we followed them up like six months after their discharge, following the the, the admission with acute DRESS, and we found that not only the patients themselves were expressing anxiety and particularly health related anxiety. A lot of their close family members, who we also interviewed, were expressing levels of mistrust and anxiety about medications, particularly, that surprised me. So they might have gone to their own GP, their own family doctor with, let's say, high blood pressure and were offered a medication. And that may have had no relation to the medication that the, the family member had reacted to that had landed them in hospital. And yet they had, by virtue of this vicarious experience, I suppose, developed lots and lots of healthcare related anxiety. Was that expressed by any of the, the, the family members that you spoke to of the of the SJSTN cohort? It was mentioned, Sarah, but I suppose I have to temper the, the answer with the fact that it was a very small, our study was very small uh, in terms of numbers for the family members, but they certainly, they were very anxious about medication uh, for their family members. They were anxious about you know, going every everything that you've mentioned there, going to the GP, there was a lot of anxiety there. So it certainly would be something that we'd like to explore maybe when we expand this study and uh, into different centres. It's yeah. certainly an interesting factor. Yeah, yeah. And maybe think a little bit as well about those touch points, because obviously yes. the patient is having emotional touch points, but the family members are also having Absolutely. touch points, which I'm yeah. sure inform yeah their long-term response to the to the experience and and maybe just to, to to finish up with you Pauline before I bring you both back into the discussion we've talked a lot in the Covid era particularly I know in, in the United Kingdom about uh, the well-being of staff and um, looking after patients in in challenging conditions such as Covid of course being the recent example um, but your findings suggest that um, staff, healthcare professionals caring for patients uh, with SJS TN also find that a traumatic experience. Mm. Um, and what kind of strategies do you think one might adopt to try and uh, address that mm. preemptively? Yes, I think it's very interesting and it's very timely. Uh, and I think from a practical perspective, and you've mentioned this, Sarah, yourself, having that designated dermatology team who are really very well briefed and experienced and know what to do, 
that can allay a lot of anxiety and fears for other staff members who are not perhaps as au fait with how to treat these patients. And I think we were just very fortunate in, in University Hospital Limerick having Sheila Ryan, the advanced nurse practitioner, doing exactly what you said. And that helps staff I, that I spoke to from the intensive care unit. She knew exactly what to do. She knew exactly what to say to the patient. She knew how to stage the care. She knew how to put on the dressing screens and all of that. So that helped staff. And I think that's very, very important. Good teamwork, really important. A good team network, you can't beat that. Uh, people that work together, support one another, uh, listen to each other. Uh, good work-life balance. Um, for myself, I would say adopting rituals, um, you know, trying to leave work behind. And I think from a, a psychological perspective, it's it's important that it's acknowledged by, by management and that, that this is very challenging for staff. Yeah. And I would always say to students and staff that I work with that, um, you know, they, it's very important that they're grounded themselves in their own solid interiority and to remain separate and not to get enmeshed mm -hmm. in the emotions with the patients and to respond to the self rather than just reacting. Mm -hmm. And I worked a lot with a clinical psychologist, uh, Dr. Tony Humphreys, over ye many years ago, and he would always say that it's in separateness that we become, you know, that we become together. And I think that's very important. So to do this, I think staff may need help. Um, they, you know, to to be able to establish, you know, what's their part in all of this. Mm -hmm. And I think they would perhaps it would be good if they had some clinical supervision, yeah. not their line manager, but somebody outside the organization where they could discuss this because everybody brings something into a situation everybody has a story and when you're faced with a challenging situation it can bring up a lot of issues so i think a safe environment where they can feel free to discuss this is very important and to learn how to deal with it yeah yeah no i think everything you said is is very very true and i, I think if i was to reflect on that question myself i i think in our center because we take like katai we take a lot of regional referrals for SJSTN and I we try as the the more senior doctors in the department to remember that the the more junior nurses and the more junior doctors our residents or our registrars will probably not have encountered this before and it can be quite uh, I think quite shocking for them uh, because it's such a dramatic mm -hmm. clinical presentation and we do try and incorporate some informal debriefing, I guess, just to ask them to speak about the experience of looking after such a, a, a visually devastating mm -hmm. disease, which I, I, I think, because as I say, it, it, it's easy when you are a little bit um, more experienced to forget that the first time you see something can be, can be very, very, can be very, very shocking. And um, I, I found it so interesting speaking to both of you. I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for your for your time. I wonder if I could just end up with just asking you both uh, your answers to, to, to two particular questions. And they're ones that um, I, I think should be the focus of our attention for, for research and further work in, in, the, in the coming years. And, and I'm thinking I've already spoken about objective tools for measuring you know pain and quality of life and anxiety and depression um, and we have lots of such tools of, of, of generic um, applicability but we but we don't have any specific for SJS uh, TN 
Um, so I was wondering if I could ask um, Pauline first, um, are there any uh, tools that in the absence of a specific one for SJST and any top clinical tips for ways to record um, the emotional experience of the patient um, both during the acute phase and afterwards? Or do you think we really need to work towards developing a more bespoke tool? Yeah, I, I actually do think we need to develop a, a bespoke um, tool. I actually spoke to um, Professor Donald Fortune. He's a clinical psychologist. He's on our research team about this. And Donald has done a lot of work with uh, psoriasis patients. And we spoke about, you know, they're, they're, whilst the generic measures have, you know, they're good, but they certainly have limitations in relation to SJS and TEN because they may not capture the, the, you know, the nuanced experiences of these patients because of the rarest of the condition. So I think it's very important that we look and address this deficit. Uh, and that is something that we, we hope to work, work on. Now, using generic measures, of course, they have their advantage because you can compare perhaps in terms of quality of life, you know, or the SF36 or Promise or one of those. You can compare, for example, quality of life of psoriasis patients and the impact being similar to those of cancer patients. And that can be of value. But when you're dealing with a very rare condition, I think it is very important that we look at maybe, um, you know, de developing that area. And we're again, we're hoping to work with, with, with our colleagues there and maybe interview patients, develop, you know, some items, trial the items. Uh, and it's, it's that with a sample of patients, you know, checking for psychometric properties and uh, developing and refining them in terms of construct validity and reliability. Uh, so I think um, as well as that, uh, it would be very valuable within clinical trials and examining, you know, uh, what helps to reduce the impact of Stevens-Johnson on the individual patient or how can we improve quality of life. And I think this would be a really good, important outcome for this group of patients. And also another thing that would be important is the use of these bespoke measures when we hopefully develop them could be used within a clinical setting that can be used as a communication tool between clinicians and their patients. Mm -hmm. And that can be empowering for the patient. It can, you know, it's very good collaborative work between the patient and the clinician. The clinician can ask these questions. They can see how is the patient progressing every time they meet them. And the patient can witness and hear, well, they are interested in the psychological aspect of my life here. And that can be quite mm -hmm. empowering and very positive, I think, for patients. So I certainly think that it is very important. And now is the time to do that. Uh, and we have, you know, as I said, we have plans in place to do yeah, that. Very exciting. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. But I think you're right. I think just simply the acknowledgement by a clinician that this is not just a physical illness, this is going to have ramifications for you beyond yes. the, the physical and the appearance. I think that in itself is very uh, powerful and gives them permission maybe to express uh, their emotions and maybe related on the, on the same in the same area. I could maybe I could rephrase for you, Jean-Pascal. And um, do you have any tips? You, you certainly spoke about the importance of clarifying in the history uh, between the affective type words and the sensory type words. Do you have any tips for the listeners about, um, could you maybe reiterate what you said about recording the, the quality of pain and the words you should try and look out for, for describing pain that can help you work out what, what, the, what the important underlying factors are? 
I think you have to distinguish between two periods. Uh, first, in the acute and past acute uh, stage, um, the problem is not only to, to, to measure the intensity of pain, but also to determine some uh, psychological factors. For instance, uh, using some questionnaire for uh, catastrophizing profile or uh, anxiety uh, states or, or traits. Um, to determine the uh, risk to develop some uh, chronic pain syndromes. I think that uh, intensity is just uh, um, one part of the problem. You have to manage and to control uh, the level of pain in the acute or, or post-acute uh, period, but to uh, determine the risk for developing some uh, distressing or disabling uh, uh, chronic pain syndrome, you have to look at the uh, psychological profile, uh, just uh, uh, using some uh, questionnaires about anxiety or uh, catastrophizing profile, I think. It's for the acute and subac, and it has been clearly demonstrating, for instance, in the uh, risk for developing chronic pain syndrome after surgery in uh, postoperative uh, pain. So uh, I think it is, uh, I think the, the main uh, message to, 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 to retain. For the, um, in the long term, uh, as I told previously, I think that the best is to uh, qualify the uh, chronic pain syndrome in terms of sensory aspects or emotional aspects. And you don't need any, at present, any uh, laboratory tests to uh, help for this uh, qualification. I think that to just to uh, listen to the patients to ask very simple questions is uh, sufficient to characterize the chronic pain syndrome. So you have to distinguish between the acute phase and the risk to uh, develop some chronic pain syndrome and the uh, chronic phase, the long-term phase, just to qualify the type of pain because the qualification, uh, an optimal qualification of the type of pain uh, will help to um, uh, develop the, the um, optimal therapeutic management, the optimal treatments. It is mm -hmm. not it is really different to treat some sensory aspects uh, such as burning pain and to, uh, to uh, treat uh, uh, the decreasing aspects of, of, of chronic pain. Of so course. I think the, this qualification is essential for, uh, um, to determine the best, the best treatment to apply for, uh, for these patients because all these, all these patients may have various mechanisms, as I told you previously, uh, either some um, neurophysiological ones uh, due to peripheral sensitization, sensory ones, or more emotional ones. So it is very important to, to qualify chronic pain and not to take chronic pain as a wolf. Yeah, that's an absolutely brilliant tip. So classifying the pain and profiling the patient. I think that's, yeah, just really, really helpful. And I'm enormously grateful to both of you. The hour has just flown by for me and I've come away with lots of food for thought and lots of excitement about maybe future research possibilities and collaborations. Um, and I, I thank you both for speaking so eloquently and so articulately about two really excellent uh, papers in, in this recent JEADV. We would like to thank Dr. Sarah Walsh, Dr. Pauline O'Reilly, and Professor Jean-Pascal Lefachour for joining us, and to Professor Mirta Tracatelli for sharing her insights for this new episode format that you'll be seeing more of in the future. The articles discussed today can be found in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Mineralogy. 
You can find links to the articles discussed today in the episode details for this podcast. Though there are many open access articles in the JADV, some of these particular articles require a subscription. All EADV members have free access to the journal and all of its content. And finally, we'd like to give a special thank you to all of our listeners. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. Otherwise, you can always find us on any major podcast provider. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to presenting more interviews, research, and other topics of merit. So until the next episode, take care of your skin.